Do that again sometime soon. And rejoice. We got Carol out of retirement. That's awesome. That's wonderful. couple of announcements. First of all, I have a 2001, I think it is, word processor that I use. And that's because royal typewriters don't produce anymore. But uh, I have a spell checker on there, and I've named it Augustine because it doesn't recognize the Greek. And uh, so on the last Sunday's message, I did a printing and beefed it up with some verses and please be kind, because even when we print these for the Tetelestai website, it's usually my edit. So it's still kind of rough. There's still some mistakes, but this one I can't let pass. There's a word in the Greek, and it's called hilasterion, H-I-L-A-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. Augustine, my spell checker, the automatic spell checker, doesn't understand the Greek. And so it translated it holstering. (laughs) That's almost as bad as when I write Satan, it says Stan, poor Stan from Ohio. (laughs) It's his name now. But it should be, and it's about three quarters down on the first page, I think the fourth paragraph, it should read this way in the transliteration, hilasterion. The reason I want to correct that one, and in future printings, that will be corrected. That's one of the key words for the word of the cross. It means mercy seat, and it refers to the propitiatory work of Jesus Christ. So that's why Augustine gets rebuked again today. And speaking of announcements... On April 26th, my brother in grace. Phil, would you stand up because there's a confusion about who you are. That's Phil, my brother in grace. And I call him my brother in grace. And someone came up to me recently and said, who is he? Because you keep saying brother in grace. He's actually my brother-in-law, my wife's Pam's brother. I call him brother in grace because of a hilarity of a twist on words instead of brother-in-law. He's my brother in grace. Get it? See? So he's going to be here on Thursday the 26th doing the Power Gospel Night, and that's an increasingly popular time for Tetelestai to get together and to hear some messages that he will then edit and put out for the whole world to hear. And more and more the world is hearing his gospel, which is a wonderful rendition of Christ's finished work with a universal horizon attached to it. So if you haven't been to that yet, please come and tune into his website also because it's more and more recognized by many people as being just a phenomenal and effective expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. April 26th, right here. And I can't do Ed Sullivan, so I won't say on our stage, whatever. Romans chapter 16 today. Speaking of Augustine, I want to do a little bit of Latin. And I'd really want these terms to be understood. There's a Latin term called pars pro toto. 
That means literally part for the whole. Sometimes Paul mentions this word in the Greek, mystery, the mystery. Okay? And this is one of the key words in the Pauline epistles, the mystery. Sometimes when he refers to it, he's referring to a part of it as if it's the whole of it. So he does the mystery pars pro toto. Then there's our word that you should know by now, in toto. In toto means in its totality, the totality or the fullness of the mystery, for example. Today and on Sunday mornings for the past, really, few months, I've been dedicating Sunday mornings to Romans in toto, answering, asking another Latin question, quidsit, just what is Romans, the epistle? How do we view it in its totality? Romans, the epistle, in toto. And then Wednesdays and Thursdays, we've been doing the pincer movement that's taking from the left flank, Romans 1 through 4, and the right flank, Romans 12 through 16, and squeezing to the center in an interpretive strategy to get to the very heart of the heart of the matter in Romans 5 through 11, a double center. But today I want to consider these two terms, and they're extremely, they have extreme importance And there's a reason why some of the colleagues that I've grown up in the Lord with and some of the colleagues that have sat under my ministry and gone on to be pastors have been stuck in a moment, like the U2 song says, stuck in a moment and can't get out of it. And my prayer is that they will break out of that moment and move on and understand the mystery in toto, not Pars pro toto. Now, Robert Jewett, and I disagree with him on how Romans ends, but he said a statement that floored me, and he's right about it. He said this, the manner in which a letter concludes has a decisive effect on how it is interpreted. And that's extremely true. So let's look at Romans 16, 24. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Paul's effort throughout by the Holy Spirit and the power of the scriptures is to bring a unity among the separate groups in Rome, the separate cells of Christians who meet in Rome, some in tenement and slum churches, some in suburban house churches, some in bureaucratic places of work. And there is a great division and several groups, each with antipathy and hostility toward the others. So the word all here is extremely important. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. But in this next three verses, we have what I think is not only the capstone of Romans in its totality, but the capstone of all of Paul's epistles. And here it is. Now to him who has the power to strengthen you by my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, that's the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the apocalypse, that's the stunning revelation of a mystery. There's our word. A mystery kept silent For ages of time gone by. But now 
manifested through the writings of the prophets and made known to all the nations by command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith or the obedience of faithfulness or participation in Christ's faithfulness, as we will see, to the only wise God. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. To the only wise God, which means the only being who is wise in toto. Through Jesus Christ be glory for the ages to come. Amen. The term mystery brackets and fills all of Paul's epistles. Once, and I'm speaking of us as a church, once we knew the mystery only in part. Now we are beginning to see it in its totality. Will we ever embrace it in its utter totality? No, not until we see the beatific vision and see him face to face. Then we will, shall known even, know even as we are known. Once we knew this mystery only in part, now we're beginning to see it in toto, in its totality. Now I want to start with an analogy for you. This is one of the most important teachings I could give you, not only in Romans, but on the whole of the scriptures. We'll begin with an analogy. Traveling by car on a winding road up a mountain. It winds around the mountain and it ascends slowly. At various points en route to the top, there are signs that indicate upcoming pull-offs which feature overlooks from which you can view the terrain below you. Now, because this road winds around the mountain again and again, you can see one vista and pull off and see an outlook on one side and then another from another side and from another angle. Now, from an accumulation of these views and outlooks, you get an idea of the lay of the whole land, the whole geographical region around you, the entire region in every direction. And this winding sojourn to a mountain top is analogous to our spiritual journey as a church or as an assembly of saints who have been congregated by God's power and will to meet in one place on many occasions. And so each vista affords something which in part represents the whole. There's a part of the whole that we see in each of these angles and from each of these vistas as we travel up this mountain. And this is where the Latin term pars pro toto comes in. And it's helpful. Now, there are many places in Paul's epistles and elsewhere. We've seen it also in Revelation 120, the mystery of the seven churches, the mystery of the seven 
stars in the hand of the Son of Man. The mystery of Babylon and in Romans in Revelation ten seven, the mystery in Toto is revealed, the mystery of God it's called. And there are many places where the mystery is seen as a part that represents the whole, but should never be taken as the whole, the entirety. To do that is to make a mistake, an interpretive mistake. The whole, W-H-O-L-E, or the entirety, the totality, is what I'm calling the mystery in toto. The mystery in its total scope and horizon, depth, height, breadth, width. And it's a cruciform-directed ministry, mystery rather. And so this, many texts speak of the mystery as a representation of the mystery in its totality. And so this term mystery, musterion in the Greek, is deployed with the understanding that the part represents the entirety. Or there may be the use of mysteries in the plural, the mysteries of the kingdom from the heavens, Matthew puts it. Jesus has a series of parables that illustrate the mysteries or different components of the great mystery, the total mystery. He speaks of the mystery of the kingdom of God like leaven that a woman mixes into three measures of meal that eventually leavens the whole as a way of showing the universal impact of the word of God and its ultimate universal horizon of the cross of Christ. He uses many parables to illustrate the mysteries, plural mysteries is in the plural because they are components or parts of the whole, which is called the mystery. Now, some examples, and you can write these down, note them mentally or whatever, because we're not going to turn to each place. I'm introducing this, and I hope to fan it out in the future a little more. Examples of the mystery pars proto, the mystery spoken of as a representation of the whole, but it's not the whole. It's speaking of the par, but represents the whole. In Romans eleven twenty-five to 26, we have an example. Paul speaks of the mystery He said, I don't want you to be ignorant of a mystery because if you remain ignorant of this mystery, he says to the Gentile Christians in Rome, he said, then you'll be wise in your own estimation. In other words, you'll boast in your own wisdom, which really isn't wisdom at all, because without the mystery, you can't be wise in the sense of knowing God's saving design in its totality. So in Romans eleven twenty five to 26, Paul speaks of the mystery within God's overall saving design. This is going to happen. He says, first, all of the totality of the Gentiles will come in. That means come into the kingdom of God, come under the lordship of Christ, come into the new Jerusalem, which represents the saving plan of God. When the totality of the Gentiles comes in, then all Israel will be saved. And so he explains the mystery of God's working in history that Israel remains in great part blind to the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. As much of the so-called church remains blind to the mystery in toto. 
And that's by the design of God, too. So there, the use of the mystery is pars pro toto. It's not everything. God, God's mystery doesn't mean this is all I'm going to do, save all the Gentiles, save all of Israel. That's a pretty good chunk of it. That's not all he's going to do. That's pars pro toto. The part for the whole. So it's important to note that the mystery here is related to God's saving design. Mystery, verse 25, saving all of Israel, verse 26. Then he goes on and explains the mechanics of it. And he goes, he ends up saying, you see what God has done in his wisdom? He has placed everybody under disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. We're getting a little close to the mystery in Toto when we get to Romans 11.32, but it's not all. Mercy upon all is God's intention. That's what we call, and I actually looked this up in the dictionary, and it is a word. It's pan-human. One word. Pan-human. Look it up. It's in American Heritage College Dictionary, 5th edition. Pan-human, from the word pas in the Greek, plus human, means all of humanity without exception. God's mystery involves a pan-human salvific plan. All the nations, all Israel. All the nations, Pleroma, the totality without exception. All Israel, the totality without exception in all of its times. Those two totalities end up being pan-human. But the pan-human plan of saving grace is still the part for the whole. And after 1132 is hit, you will notice that there's a little thing called a doxology, where God is ascribed glory and honor for what he's done. It's an ecstatic expression of praise and thanksgiving and gratitude. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. His ways are past finding out. His judgments are unfathomable because they're all gracious. As we've seen, the wisdom that the apostle speaks of is God's saving wisdom. I'm going to do a discourse on that one day. God's wisdom being his salvific design. His salutary design is another way of saying saving design. His knowledge that is spoken of here in Romans eleven thirty three to 36 is his recognition of of all humanity in Christ. God sees all of humanity in Christ and therefore all humanity alive. Jesus said that to the Sadducees who did not believe in the power of the resurrection. They didn't, they didn't know the scriptures nor the power of God. They didn't know the scriptures that speak throughout of the restoration of all things in Acts 3.21 and they didn't know the power of God which is omnipotence married to love. And Jesus said, don't you know that to God all are living? In Luke 20, 37 and 38, don't you know that to God all are living? Did not Moses say that God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is not a God of the dead, but a God of the living because all are living to him. So God's knowledge 
is the recognition that all humankind in all of its times is alive in Christ. Not will be, not to God. That's to us. To God, he sees them that way already. We called it positional truth once, remember? And it was for the church. I'm here to tell you today that positional truth is for the world. Now, that's going to take a while to dawn on you because if it hits you all at once, you'd fall over in your chair. So the mystery is related to God's saving design. I'll say it again because I don't, you don't believe me. I believe it or I wouldn't say it. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. To us all will be made alive. To God all are alive. All are living to him. He gives life to all things, says 1 Timothy 6.13. Now, the reason this message is not accepted is because it involves a great humbling on the part of the church. Me first. And this has been a great leveling to me, a great humbling. The mystery is related to God's saving design. The mystery in its totality relates to God's saving design, but his saving design is fully embodied in Jesus Christ. So the mystery is related to God's saving design, what 2 Timothy 1.9 calls his purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. God is already present to your future. God is already present to the future of all mankind. That's his omnipresence. God is already future in the future. He inhabits our future already. He inhabits the future of all mankind. To him, all are alive. And Jesus Christ both died and came back to life that he might be the Lord of the living and the dead. So you say, where are the dead? I'll tell you where they're not. They're not in hell like the rich man in a parable, which was a folklore tale that came from Egypt in the 12th century BC, which Jesus retold just to flip it upside down and say, that's not what happens to people after death. Yes, I'm still going to teach the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I have 11 pages of notes. I've got to reduce it to four. Then I'll teach it. I'm already so convinced it's unqualified. And it's, it's a sad building that uses as a foundation block the doctrine of, for the doctrine of hell, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Because that so-called foundation stone can be kicked out from underneath that building and it all collapses. Incidentally, today's Easter Sunday to the Orthodox church. And I'm all about that. I'm be, if I had to join either the Western church that celebrated it last week or the Eastern Orthodox church celebrated it this week, I'd celebrate it this week. But I celebrate it every day. But I'd celebrate it this week because the Eastern Orthodox Church didn't listen to Augustine who didn't get the Greek. And they kept the doctrine of the apocatastasis panton. They understood the restoration of all things. 
And it's usually part of their liturgy. I don't know if it's part of this pastor's sermons in the Orthodox Church. It should be. Now, let's get back to our thought here. The entry of the Gentiles in their totality to God's saving design and the salvation of all Israel is the mystery pars pro toto, a part of it spoken of as the whole. How about Colossians 1, 26 to 27? The mystery is described as Christ in, or better, among the Gentiles. Christ in you. Christ among you, Gentile Christians. As the hope of glory. This is the mystery. But it's the mystery pars pro toto, not in toto. In Ephesians 3, 6, it says, The Gentiles are presently said to be fellow heirs of the same body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel. And that's called the mystery, but it's the mystery pars pro toto, not the mystery in toto. And there are many, and they call themselves dispensationalists, or they're followers of Cornelius Stamm, or they're followers of James Dar- of Darby and the other Plymouth brethren who are dispensationalists and believe in a secret rapture. They're followers of other dispensationalists, like I was for many, many years, and they stop there. That's an overlook about a third of the way up the mountain that sees a part of a vista and thinks that's the whole thing. And it's pars pro toto. It's nowhere near in toto. What's happening in t- history in Paul's time and in our own time? Whether you're a Jew or Gentile, the gospel comes and evokes faith in you and places you in the same body with others, and you are all, we are all partakers of the promise. And that means the promise given to Abraham that in his seed, who is Christ, all the nations will be blessed, including Israel. All humanity, in other words, will be blessed in Abraham's seed, who is Christ. We're getting closer to the mystery in Toto, but it's expressed as an expression of it in history. Someone may here be from an Israeli origin and can prove it with Ancestry.com. You spit in a tube, and so it's got to be true. (laughs) Or some of you may be of Gentile extraction. Most of us are probably of a bunch of mixes, so we can't. There's only one race, and you know that. It's called the human race. It's a pan-human thing. The human race. But whether you're, whatever your extraction, in one body, you are partakers of the privilege and the benefits of the same promise by the gospel, together with equal privilege and equal participation. Now, when I was a dispensationalist, I thought that was the whole thing. I thought that was the whole mystery. And there are many of my brothers who still teach that as the whole, and the U2 song is very good about them, too. (laughs) It's called Stuck in a Moment, and you can't get out of it. I pray that they'll get out of it. Once they were my students, for crying out loud. So I pray for them and love them. So, in fact, I love them as much as when they were seated here and humble, (laughs) listening. (laughs) Not right in New Kensington, but other places. So, now if you think I'm being lofty, you have to hear Thursday night's message. It's called The Teacher and the Schmuck. And I view myself more as the schmuck than the teacher. 
And I don't even have, I don't even, I'm not even a talented speaker. I just happen to believe the gospel, and so I preach it. Not a talented speaker. I just believe. I believe, therefore I speak. In 2 Corinthians 4.13. That's been easy. It's been a good relationship. He's given me the gift of faith. Gift of teaching, that's debatable. But anyways, how about Paul speaking there of an important component of the total mystery? The co-participation, and that's the word, of Gentiles and Jews of the promise in Christ by the gospel, which was, has evoked or elicited or kindled faith in both Gentiles and Jews. And I believe in monergism, which I'll be teaching soon. Salvation is a single action by God. It's not a double action of God's action and my responsive action. God is the Savior. He saves. And he actually evokes or elicits or kindles faith in us. And that faith isn't to bring us to justification. It's to give us understanding of what he's done for the whole world so that we can proclaim it to the whole world. We, the church has forgotten that Jesus Christ didn't come to die for the church. He came to die for the world. He came to redeem the world. He came to save the world, not the church only. If you got saved and you have faith in this message, you're supposed to just be the living prayer that says, let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. I led Cole and Adrian, my grandsons I was with last night, in the prayer, and it was I think it was even King James, I said, follow me. And they actually put down their iPad and said, our father, and I'd, they, I'd say our father, and they did the whole thing. And when I got to thy kingdom come, they said, thy kingdom come. And I said, well, that's it. That's why we are in Christ. It is to pray that prayer. Let your kingdom come in its fullness. Let your kingdom come. Let this age pass away. Let this evil age pass away. Let your grace come. And another way of saying that prayer is what it says at the end of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus. We are that prayer for the world. We are that prayer for the world. It's being said in thousands of churches this morning, Protestant and Catholic, Orthodox and Reformed. That prayer is being prayed. And God is hearing that prayer, and he will answer that prayer in its totality. Let your kingdom come, or as the Didache put it, let grace come and this world pass away. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice so that you'll be transformed by the renovation of your thinking and no longer conform to this age. Why? Because it's passing away. The church is the living prayer. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The reconciliation of all things in earth and in heaven. We are that prayer. We are the personified prayer of the Lord. We are light in the Lord. Once we were peace at, at peace with the darkness, once we were a piece of the darkness, now we are light in the Lord. And we say to the world, wake up, and Christ will shine on you too. Rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. 
So then, to take what is only part and to take it as the whole is to make a mistake in interpretation of the word. It's to assume that on one of the lower outlooks, you've seen the panoramic view. But you have not. This is where dispensationalists get stuck in a moment. They park. They look out over the part of that terrain. It's beautiful. It's stunning. There's rivers. There's forests. There's hills, valleys. It's beautiful. They thoroughly take in the view. They truly appreciate and appropriate it so that it stays in their memory. And it can be recounted and described with great excitement to others. They go home and they assume, though, that they have the whole picture. They do not. It's certainly wonderful that Christ is among the Gentiles. Just as he was among the Jews, Israel, he was the rock that followed them in the wilderness. The rock was Christ. First Corinthians 10.4, and he's with us, among us. It's another big 10.4 in Romans 10.4, which we'll be teaching soon. First Corinthians 10.4, it's equally wonderful that uncircumcised Gentiles, sometimes even called schmucks, have equal privilege and participation with Jews in the promise in Christ by the gospel. But even these wonderful things, and they are wonderful, God let us look on that overlook, and I stayed there for a lot of years looking at that view. And it was wonderful, and it still is. But it's only pars pro toto. So if you want to go back to Kansas, you can take toto too. Of course, you know that the Wizard of Oz that everybody likes so much was written by an atheist to take away the gospel, but let's not go there today. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15.51, Paul shocks his readers with this. Look, he says, I'm telling you a mystery. Look, behold, look, he says, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all die, that means physically, but we will all be changed. What's he doing here? He's beginning an answer to the problem posed in 1 Corinthians 15.50. Flesh and blood in its present moral, mortal and corruptible state cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So you go to Galatians. We did this. I did a threefold interpretation of Galatians 5.21, what it means those who practice these things do not inherit the kingdom of God. And that was assumed that that means some people won't go to heaven. That's the furthest thing from Paul's mind. So I gave it a threefold interpretation. But here Paul says, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. Period. So whether you practice those things or not, you can't inherit the kingdom of God. Because when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, all of us will be changed. Into a form, into a constitution like the body of Christ's glory, the body of Jesus' glory that he has now at the right hand of the Father, so that we can fully inherit, fully experience, fully rejoice in God's manifest kingdom. That's what I want to come. If you love this age, you'll forsake this word. As Paul said, Demas has forsaken me. He loves this present age. 
if you don't love this present age, if you don't like the way things are in this world, blessed are you. You're the poor in spirit, and the kingdom of God belongs to you. That means the hope of the kingdom is beginning to bubble up in your soul because this age that's passing away is not permanent. Many people who take their own lives in desperation do it because they think that this age is going to last forever. This is the hope that this age is passing away. And the hope is the sustaining anchorage that keeps you in this evil age, puts up a faith shield, and has the hope of things to come. And that's what sustains you in this evil age. Without hope, you can see the despair of people. And you don't, I don't judge it when people do extreme things. I don't judge it when they do extreme things because they see this evil age. And like it said about Nietzsche, the philosopher, they said the poor guy saw the abyss but never saw the Savior. We have to have bifocals. We see the passing evil age, it's marching by right in front of our eyes, but we also see the dawn. We see the night is being far spent now. We see the dawn. We see the dawn, the sun beginning to rise above the mountain and spill over into the valley. It's inevitable. The kingdom is coming. So then, hope. So dispensationalists, and not just them, but a lot of us, got stuck in a moment. They park and look over the terrain. They think it's wonderful. They go home and report it. And even this mystery that Paul talks about, the resurrection, is something he says that's going to happen to all of us. We will all be changed. He's still talking along the vein of 1 Corinthians 15, 22 in 15, 51. We will all be made alive in Christ. We will all be changed. We aren't all going to die because when Jesus comes, it will actually be an event and the dead will be raised, their bodies will be raised incorruptible. Well, what about those of us who are still alive when he comes, not to take some away, but to stay and transform the whole universe? We'll be changed. This mortal is the body that's walking around on the earth. The corruptible is the body that's decaying in the ground. Well, where are the souls of believers and unbelievers that have passed from this life? They are with Christ! including the so-called unbelievers, and I will prove that to you in Scripture. So then, who is more accountable for error? The person who dies without believing and goes to be in a comfort place until they're raised from the dead, or the preacher that says they're in hell? Preacher might have credentials and he might have ordination, but he isn't worth a plugged nickel in the kingdom of God right now. All right. I actually heard one of those on the radio once. She's a pro- she was a prostitute while she was alive. She's in hell today. Well, the hell with you, preacher. Even though you're not going there, it's just an expression. Poor guy's in hell as he preaches. That's the hell of it. So then, 
Paul's talking about the eschatological outworking of the fact that just as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. Flesh and blood can't get into the fullness of the kingdom, can't experience it totally. So God's got a solution. We'll all be changed. We're not all going to die by the, the change is going to bring some of us who are mortal to put on immortality without even dying. Others that have died are corruptible and decaying. They'll put on incorruption. So the saying will be brought to pass, hey, death, where's your sting now? Hey, grave, where's your holding power? For all the human race. Don't minimize the cross of Christ by telling me about a pseudo partial election of some human beings and the rest burn in hell. Don't blaspheme Jesus Christ anymore with that. It won't stand. The speakers who speak in my place in this pulpit say that they're out. They're done. They'll never speak again. Thank God they're not doing that. Just a warning. Brian, you're sweating. (laughs) He's not really. He's smiling. And shooting daggers at me. No, he's not. He's, he has a hold of this gospel. So that's not the mystery. That's not the mystery in total, though. Even that Easter Sunday message is not the mystery in total. It's salvific truth. It's biblical soteriology. Better yet, it's biblical Christology. It's an integral part of God's saving action in the future. A resurrection of all humankind. A judgment unto acquittal for the evildoer. A judgment unto life for those already in Christ. Christ's own resurrection is irrevocably tied to the general resurrection. In 1 Corinthians fifteen sixteen. Christ's death and resurrection ensures the resurrection of all. For if one died for all, then all died. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, so in the reasoning of 1 Corinthians 15.16 through 15.52 is that when he rose, so did all human beings. All are alive to God. And salvation is an entirely divine action. So if salvation is an entirely divine action and we can demonstrate it in the scriptures, then God saves all. If it's a matter of divine action plus human response, then God saves some. But God saves all. So it's an action of God in Christ. Tetelestai was cried out from the cross long before you were born. And me too. I'm going into more and more rooms lately or restaurants or places, and I'm realizing I'm the oldest guy there now. But Tetelestai was even said before I was born. I'm not the oldest man in this room. I see you, Pastor Rybar, in the back row. I can see you. <laughs> so then, I got an eye on the sheep, but I got an eye on the shepherds too. This will culminate then in a bodily transformation that at once transforms the bodies of dead people and the bodies of living mortals into bodies like Jesus' soma doxa, body of glory. This is a mystery that fills us to overflowing with the hope 
of the resurrection by the spirit. Even this, though, is a partial view afforded by an overlook that's not yet all the way up the mountain. So we should keep this in our memory and anticipate it as our hope of glory. And we should even boast in the hope of the glory of God in Romans 5, 2. And in all of our adversities, because we hope, that is, we expect the glory of God being all radiant pan-humanly throughout all the human race. Now, I've got to speed up a little bit here just to get to the in toto part. We're close to the mystery of in toto in the early part of Paul's letters known to us as Ephesians. I taught it as tabula rasa, a clean slate. I had no idea the implications of that, so I have to t- teach it again sometime. Tabula rasa means you got a clean slate, you write on a clean slate. Ephesians was written to a church, probably Laodicea, from Paul's imprisonment in another place in Asia Minor. And he writes to them on a clean slate. They're a group of collected saints that action of God has saved them. He made them alive in Christ while they were dead in trespasses and sins, while somebody was preaching. They then continued to meet. So Paul says, let me write to you on a clean slate, tabula rasa. I'm not writing to you on a written on slate like I am in Romans. Romans, I've got a teacher I've got to deal with that's teaching justification by the works of the law. Galatians, I've got a whole bunch of teachers there teaching that you're justified by the works of the law. So I don't have a clean slate. I've got to go in and hammer those guys. Ephesians, I got a clean slate. You're just in Christ, and you're wondering how in the heck you got there. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You've been made alive. You've been saved by grace through the faithfulness of someone else. It's not of yourselves. And he explains to them on the clean slate in Ephesians. But how does he open Ephesians? He opens Ephesians with the mystery in toto. The mystery in its totality is this. God's will is in a mystery. The mystery of God's will before time, before the ages, was to sum up everything, anakephaleao, to sum up everything in heaven and on earth, tapanta, everything, all of created reality, in all of its times, in Christ. And to make all things be comprised of him, so that he dies and he rises from the dead and he ascends to the highest place, having gone to the lowest place, that he might fill up everything with himself. That's the mystery in toto. The mystery in toto is God being all in all, because Christ is all and he's in all, and he reconciles all things in the heavens and earth, all created beings are brought into him. That's the mystery in total. That's what we've discovered so far. That's why the Israel of God graduated into a horizon that's universal. That's why USSJC is the mystery in total, the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ is the mystery in its totality. Once you see the mystery in its totality, you can represent and appreciate its components, but you never say that any one of the components is the whole. To do that is to limit the horizon of the cross, and to limit the horizon of the cross is to limit the depth of the cross and the depth of God's love and to be ignorant of the scriptures that proclaim throughout a universal restoration and ignorant of the power of God for whom nothing is impossible. 
from the human standpoint, it's harder for that rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle. And so his disciples will say, well, then who can be saved? And the answer is nobody by human means. But with God, all things are possible. Why are all things possible, including the salvation of the rich man? Because salvation is a monergistic single act of God. It's not a double action pistol. It's a single shot. You pull the trigger, bang. It's not a double action. You pull the hammer back. Then drop it. That's double action. Salvation is a single action. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So Luke preaches a universal gospel from the beginning and the end. You think then he's going to stick a parable in the middle that says, well, one guy goes to hell, though. He's a really bad soul. He's a bad man. Well, what are you going to do with, with Paul saying he justifies the ungodly then? It doesn't say he justifies ungodliness. Paul will answer that question from Romans 6.1 all the way to 8.13 and then all the way through 12.16 and 12.21. And then he'll say, you want a revolution in your country? You think you're a revolutionary? You haven't joined the revolution of the passing of two ages, the passing of an old age and the beginning of the new. Get with the real revolution. Present your bodies to it. Give yourselves to it. The real revolution is the turn of the ages at the cross, the passing of the night and the coming of the day and your announcement of the day. And when you get this message, guess what you need? Faith. And there's a reason Paul said it's a shield. Because every kind of opposition will hit you right from home, right from the church, right from those who call themselves Christians and even pride themselves in being of the elect and not of the damned. Those are are where you get the strongest opposition. And it's not flesh and blood that's instigating that opposition, friends. It's the principalities and powers that still are in spasm after Christ nailed them at the cross. They're still in spasm. That's the reason why there's so much turmoil in this age, so much blasphemy, so much of the injustices of man. It's the old age and the old man in spasm after he has been defeated. And that is aimed at the true gospel. You wonder why, why isn't the church suffering persecution like it did in Paul's time? Because the church doesn't have the gospel that they did in Paul's time. But it's coming back. Why do you think they wanted to kill Jesus? Because his message, his first message was about Naaman being healed. And Naaman was a Syrian general. And it was about a widow in Zarephath having her son raised from the dead, not a Jewish widow. And so they said, we got to throw this guy off the cliff. His message is too inclusive. It's also very exclusive because he's the only Savior, and there's no other name under heaven given to men whereby people can be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. But it's also inclusive. It includes everybody, including what the fundy pastor wants to eliminate from the roles of the kingdom of God. You eliminate one person in this world, however evil, you've eliminated yourself, you phony hypocrite. Now, let's close. If Campbell is right, 
I'll close with this. This is I'm going to fan this out in subsequent messages. Douglas A. Campbell wrote a book called The Deliverance of God, or God, yeah, The Deliverance of God. He puts Ephesians first in Paul's letters and Romans last. Now, what if he's right? And there's a good reason to believe that he is, and I can demonstrate that too, because I read the book Framing Paul, and I read the other 1,000-page book, Deliverance of God, and the other book on the quest for the gospel, and all the rest of the things, and a 100 other books. But Ephesians begins with the mystery in Toto. The reconciliation, or the summing up of all things in Christ. He echoes it in Colossians. He says that all things in heaven and earth will be reconciled to God and to one another through the peace that was made by the blood of Christ's cross. Don't diminish the blood of Christ's cross by diminishing the horizon of its effect. Because to minimize the horizon, the panoramic view from the top of the mountain, and to call some other view the part, the whole, is to also minimize and marginalize the cross of Christ and the love of God demonstrated in him. Romans ends 16. Let's put this one nine to 11 mystery in Toto. And it's also boxed in with Ephesians six nineteen. pray for me that I make, make known the mystery of the gospel, not just the gospel, the mystery of the gospel. Let God hear your prayers in his ears for your pastor and your preachers and your teachers and yourselves that you might make known the mystery in toto in the proclamation of the gospel. Paul then goes on to say, for which I am in chains. Think there's a little opposition to it. The reason the church doesn't suffer like it did back then. Oh, it is in other places in the, in the world. And the reason why we're still comfortable and unpersecuted is because we don't have the gospel that they have. <laughs> Funny thing. How about Romans sixteen twenty five to 27 being the last words of Paul's epistles? Guess what we have? The mystery in toto. The proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery kept silent. It was silent. You know what silence means? When something's silent, when the Bible writers talk about God being silent, when Revelation 8 talks about silence in heaven for a half an hour, but a half an hour... Could be a thousand years to God as a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. You know what silence meant in the scriptures? And the longer the silence, the more it meant it. It was an anticipation of God acting in salvation. Anticipation of God acting salvifically. So the mystery was kept silent for ages. But it's now being manifested by the command of the eternal God. It's popping in the prophets. Once you'd read the prophets, you might see Christ here or there. Now you read the prophets and you see the mystery in toto of God's plan to reconcile the whole of his creation in all of its times because that's how he sets his house in order. How does God set his house in order? Isaiah comes to Hezekiah. Set your house in order. You're going to die soon. Set your house in order. Get your things in order. Get your documents in order. Get your life insurance plans all lined up. Get your inheritance lined up so your kids don't have to go searching for it for three months. Get your house in order. What about God the Father's house? 
He's the father of every family in heaven and earth, according to Ephesians 3.15. How does he get his house in order? Well, he lets his inheritance come through the death of his son to all creation in all of its times. That's how he wraps up and brings everything into his household. He sets his household in order by acting salvifically toward all of created reality in all of its times and summarizing it in his son at the expense of the cross of Christ, which is too far and too deep and too wide and too broad for us ever to fathom, even at the beatific vision. It is an incomprehensible price that was paid for us. You're not your own now. When you see the price that was paid, you're glad you're not your own. Let me ask you this. Aren't you tired of being your own? I'm my own person. Wow. That's original. I got to be me. Whoa. Wow. That's hip. Guess who was the first person that said that? Adam. Guess who echoed it? Isha. Eve. I want to be my own person. Really? We'll write a cartoon about you. Because that's what you are. A cartoon. <clears throat> now, so you see, we need to be transformed into reality because we were cartoons. So, Paul's epistles seem to be bracketed by the mystery in toto. So, it runs through everything he says. So, you can't take the part for the whole. Well, it says here, if you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, it says over here, you can't inherit the kingdom of God if you're flesh and blood. (laughs) God justifies the ungodly. He doesn't justify ungodliness, but he sure does rectify the ungodly. And how does he do it? The last thing I'll say, my favorite verse, Romans 5.18. Through his one act of obedience... He brings rectifying life pan-humanly to all humankind. Thank you, Father. We're grateful that you have shown us the difference and what a right division of the word, what a way to rightly divide the word of truth than by seeing the mystery in part and then seeing it in its totality. And may we never mix up the two. May we never take the part and consider it to be the whole and base our whole doctrinal and dogmatic belief system on a part. And I pray that you'll take all of us for it. We all see in part. And even if we knew all the mysteries and the mystery in total but didn't have love, we'd still be lacking. We'd still be nothing. So, We know that the truth that you're trying to bring to us or that you are bringing to us through the word embodied in Jesus is to know the mystery in such a way that it ignites love for all humankind. Love, in fact, for all creation. But even more importantly, love with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength for you, Father. 